Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter 20. If you are just joining us for the first week, uh, we are right in the middle of a series that we've been doing on uh, ministry in the church, your ministry in the church, what it means for every Christian to serve and what it means for every Christian to support the ministry of the local church by doing the kinds of things that scripture describes and by fulfilling our responsibilities to the Lord and to one another. The subject that we want to address this morning is ministry with biblical leadership and we'll do this because of the importance of this particular subject. Uh, we're going to do this over the course of two Sundays instead of just one as we've been doing the other, uh, the other subjects that we've been covering. But we want to read Acts chapter 20. This is the Apostle Paul. He is uh, returning to Jerusalem. Uh, he is on his uh, third missionary journey. He is going back. He wants to deliver to Jerusalem, to the impoverished believers there, an offering that's been collected over the course of several months, really probably multiple years, from the Gentile churches throughout Macedonia and Achaia, including Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, and so on. Um, as he's on his way back to Jerusalem, the ship um, docks in a nearby place, come, stops in a nearby place, and is close enough to where he can get the elders of the Ephesian church to come to him, a place where he had spent a number of years, uh, really probably as long as he stayed anywhere in his ministry once he began going on these missionary journeys until he was arrested later on in the, at the end of this third missionary journey when he does arrive to Jerusalem. Uh, but he takes advantage of the opportunity to come and to speak to these Ephesian elders um, for what he says is one last time. So I want to read this account. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17 and reading through verse 35. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, <clears throat> You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, that is Asia Minor where Ephesus was, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears." And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We'll read the rest of the chapter. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. We all know what it's like to stop in town somewhere or to be somewhere on a visit and pull together a visit at the last minute or something where you have an opportunity to see someone that you otherwise would not normally get to see. A few years ago, I was able to do this, uh, visiting a relative of mine I don't get to see often in Washington, D.C. while on a trip, uh, running over cobblestone streets with a suitcase with wheels on it to the point where the wheels were destroyed, sweating when I arrived to the point to uh, when I saw her that I was completely drenched and covered in sweat from the the September heat and uh, this was just kind of not the typical way that you would want to approach someone and yet it was worth it because it was someone that I wasn't going to get a chance to see for some time and hadn't seen for a long time. Uh, A personal visit like this is something that we often make great pains to make happen and yet what we have here in Acts chapter 20 is something that's much more than a personal visit. This is a passage that speaks not only of Paul's love for these men, these Ephesian elders, those men whom he had spent time with and who loved him uh, relationally, these guys who were his friends, his fellow workers, but it also speaks to the importance of the fact that the church needs leadership. And what Paul understood that these leaders needed to be, not only when he had been there, but also after his departure in a way that would be ongoing throughout the life of the church. Paul certainly had a friendship with these men, but if it were just a friendship, we would simply see what happened at the very beginning of the letter, that, or the, the passage that he called for them, and what happened at the end, which was that they embraced him. But we certainly wouldn't have the kind of charge that is recorded for us. Paul takes advantage of this opportunity to see them not only because he missed them, but because he understood what was at stake. He understood the importance of leadership in the church. He understood the kinds of things that could go wrong. And just as had been happening throughout the entire book of Acts with regard to the church, so Paul also here makes sure that the leadership is set before he departs from the church for the last time. And I've mentioned this previously, but uh, when it comes to the way that the church is set up, there is more to the Christian mission, more to the gospel mission than simply preaching the gospel and leaving people to live on their own. We are to form local churches, local churches that carry out the mission that God has for his people, not simply individually, not just in whatever coalitions or organizations or institutions we might put together on our own, but in a very specific institution, namely the church. And then those local churches having been established, we are, as we'll see this morning, to make sure that there is leadership in those churches. And the apostles never saw the churches as being fully ready to leave behind until that qualified leadership had actually been appointed and solidified. So, for example, back in Acts chapter 14, on the tail end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, they went up through the churches in one direction that they had formed. They went through these cities that they preached the gospel. 
gospel to. And then as they came back through, they did something. In Acts 14, 21, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they, appointed, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so they leave them in the hands of the Lord, not simply having preached the gospel to them, not even having gathered them into churches, but having appointed leaders for them in those churches. They were not content that someone had been saved as thankful as they might be, but they wanted the church to be established with faithful doctrine and faithful leaders. This is why you find Paul, for example, writing at the end of the book of Romans, and he says in chapter 15, I've been wanting to come to you for a long time, but I've had some work to do. And at the same time as he's doing that, he is in Corinth, where he has just come again trying to fix the problems that he has written to them about over and over again, knowing that that church there is not ready for him to leave because it still hasn't been solidified the way that it needs to be and the way that Paul understood that the church was to be left in good hands was not simply that he had taught them sound doctrine and that the whole body of the church knew that sound doctrine but specifically that there were leaders who were qualified to be in that position and who would adhere to and preserve that sound doctrine throughout the course of the church's life in generations to come this is why he said in 2 Timothy 2.2 that Timothy needed to entrust these things to faithful men who would teach others also. This is why he said in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 16 that I'm giving you these instructions so you know how the church ought to be conducted because of the importance of the gospel that we have. Great is the mystery of godliness and therefore the church is to be structured and set up in a particular way. All of this to say that the leadership in the church is essential. It's not something that we can just hope we have and say we're good because we can go find sermons here. We can read our Bible here. We can serve regardless. Instead, we need to have faithful leadership. And unfortunately, all too many Christians who strive and aspire to be faithful to the Lord nonetheless languish well behind where they could be spiritually if they simply had the kind of leadership that would adhere to the things that Paul listed here in Acts 20 and in other places. Faithful leadership is vital to the health of the church. And you notice some of the things that they do here in Acts chapter 20. You notice the example that he set for them. It says that he was serving in verse 19 with humility and with, tear, with tears and trials. There was a kind of lowliness that he was willing to endure for the sake of the church. You find the faithfulness to proclaim the truth that's listed in verses 20 and 21. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable he testified of repentance and faith verse 21 and he even says in verses 26 and 27 of acts 20 therefore i testify to you this day that i'm innocent of the blood of all men for i did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of god paul was not like many preachers who would follow him that he described in acts or first timothy excuse me second timothy 4 who would preach for itching ears who would teach the people what they wanted to hear. Instead, Paul says, I didn't hold back anything at all that would benefit you. I gave you the entire scripture. He was unwilling to pick and choose his favorites or the favorites of the culture or to avoid the kinds of things that he knew would be controversial or that some people wouldn't like. He says, I told you everything, the whole purpose of God, and that makes me innocent. That makes me stand 
okay before God when he assesses the faithfulness of my ministry before you. Paul was willing to suffer for the church. He set that example. He didn't consider his life as any account as dear to himself. What he wanted to do was preach the gospel. And then he told them in verses 28 and following about the need for them to watch out for the church. To look out for the church's spiritual condition. Because there would be people who would not only come in, but who would come up from in the church. And who would try to destroy the church. He says in verse 29, there will be savage wolves who will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things. To draw away the disciples after them. What the Corinthians had tried to force upon their leaders. Saying I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Dividing leaders who were not divided. Unfortunately in some cases people will do who are in leadership. And they will try to draw away the disciples after themselves. To have a personal following. This is the kind of thing that can destroy a church and Paul said you need to watch out you need to be on the alert don't let it happen all of this then is essential for a church to be healthy and to be safe I suspect that you're not content to just be here right now at a church where you think that you can grow and learn and serve and be fed and be faithful I suspect that you want this to continue And that you want it to be the kind of thing that is strengthened. And that you want the the kind of church that you think is good to multiply, to expand, to send out, to help other churches, to strengthen, and to last for generations and generations. Well, if this is going to be the case, it's got to have faithful leadership. It simply has to. There is no way for a church to endure long term in the kind of ministry that it ought to be doing, and really there's no way for a church to do ministry in the fullness that it's capable of through the people that it comprises without faithful leadership. You have to have faithful leadership in the church. And scripture talks about this kind of thing over and over and over again. It lays very, very detailed uh, qualifications, very, very detailed information about the kinds of things that are to be watched out for in leaders and the kinds of things that are to be pursued. It talks about leadership over and over again, particularly the officers of the church. And we ought to pay careful attention to this. This is a vital, vital topic for us to understand. So what we want to do this morning is look at what ministry with biblical leadership looks like, starting from the point of the principles of biblical leadership and then the people who are there. And then next time we will look at more that has to do with how we practice this and how we actually then develop biblical leaders in the church. Uh, So we'll walk through this and you'll see this in our outline as we go. But ministry with biblical leadership is what we're talking about. And we want to begin by talking about the principles of biblical leadership. What are some of the principles (coughs) of biblical leadership? And I want to begin that by just considering the benefits. The benefits of faithful leadership. Leaders, what do we get out of having faithful leaders? And it's an important question to ask and to consider because uh, there is kind of an idea that maybe you don't necessarily have to have leadership at all. 
Uh, in fact, I read several years ago about one church that had uh, been so upset by the way that the leadership had been done that they were ex- very explicit that the people in their church were all in charge. And that this is kind of, we are not going to have leaders from among us. We are the church that belongs to the people in the church. And we're just not going to have, you know, any kind of formal leaders among us. That's kind of appealing in some ways to some people, um, particularly because leadership has been so badly and so often misused in the world and in the church. Consider how many types of leadership have been abused. The leadership and the authority of parents toward their children has been misused to mistreat children. The authority of teachers and school administration has been misused for selfish ends. The authority and the power of government officials and law enforcement has been and can be misused to enrich oneself and to look out for one's own interests and one's own friends as opposed to doing what is just and what is right and what is in the best interest of people who need to be helped. Even athletic coaches can misuse the authority that they have. And then, of course, religious leaders. The Bible doesn't shy away from this fact. There are many, many religious leaders who are not intent on doing what's good for God's people. And this is why the qualifications are given in the Scripture. This is why the warnings are given in Scripture. It just absolutely puts right before our eyes this idea that this can happen. Scripture doesn't dodge the subject of the abuse of God's people by people who would claim to be their leaders. It takes it head on. It's something that is there. Everyone from the Pharisees to the evil kings of Israel to the men who serve out of selfish ambition to those who would teach false and strange doctrine to those who, according to 2 Timothy 3, would enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins. All kinds of people who would misuse and who would abuse people who in good faith follow them as if they were the people who would lead them toward Christ when instead they're just leading them after themselves. With all of this kind of bad leadership and misuse of leadership and authority, why shouldn't we just get rid of it? Why shouldn't we just say, let's get rid of leaders. Let's not follow any authority. Let's just put this into the hands as much as we can of the individual Christian or the collective church. Well, one reason we can't get rid of it is just pragmatically speaking, leaders will arise one way or another. Is this not true? There will be leaders and there will be people who follow those leaders. And so if someone's going to be in charge, we might as well be careful about who we actually put in those positions. Another more direct reason we need to have leadership is because God actually instructs the church to appoint leaders, as we'll see. Not only is the example in the book of Acts there, but also, for example, in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3, there are qualifications given with the intention that leaders would be appointed in the church. But even more than that, we want to be careful about the leaders that the church has because the Bible speaks of the blessing and the protection and the help that's offered when leadership is done well. It is able to be done well. Authority is able to be used wisely 
and selflessly. It is able to be used righteously. And unfortunately, the world has colored our view of this and abuses of authority have, covered our, or have colored our view of this so that it's really easy to think sometimes that we just have, can have nobody in charge of anything who can actually do this rightly and selflessly. And yet, the Bible says that it is true. Uh, one passage that speaks of this is in 2 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. We read that to you. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. You know what that kind of day is like, don't you? We've had a few of those lately. This just beautiful it's just pleasant you it just makes you want to be outside you want to be part of that the same thing is true when there is a ruler who rules over men righteously who rules in the fear of God this is not oppressive this doesn't hinder what we want to do this is a blessing this is something we want to be part of it's something we want to experience and so someone who rules righteously in the fear of God doing it the way that God wants brings this kind of blessing to people Now, of course, the ultimate example of this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Listen to these words that describe his rule in Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What are they going to do? They're going to turn their weapons of war into things that produce and bring blessing. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Here is what Jesus Christ is going to do. He's going to bring blessing. He's going to bring peace. He is going to have the kind of situation surrounding him that people will want to come and be part of. They'll say, tell us what to do. Tell us your ways. Tell us how this works. Please let us be part of this rule and reign, which, by the way, will be complete dictatorship in the best sense of the word. No one is voting Jesus into office. No one is voting him out. He is going to rule all, and yet this ultimate and complete authority will be something that everyone will want to have a part in. This is the kind of blessing that righteous leadership brings. Now, no person in his right mind would say that a leader in the church is on that level of blessing. No one would say that he rules perfectly righteously. No leader in the church would say that he rules perfectly in the fear of God. And yet, in general, the idea is there that authority and leadership can and should be used to bring benefit to the people who are led. And so, in order to do this, there are some things 
that these leaders will be doing. And there are some main categories that I want to give you of what leadership looks like in action. And we'll kind of hit this from two angles. One will be later on when we talk about the activities of what elders do, but also just in general, how to think about what faithful leaders do. So I want to think about that next, the activities of faithful leaders. Uh, They bring benefit. How do they do that? Well, first of all, they do it through influencing toward godliness, influencing toward godliness. We live in a world of influencing, do we not? And unfortunately, much of it today is just simply people who are influential for the sake of being influential. There is a term that you, some of you will know and some of you may not be familiar with called an influencer, someone who just is an influential person on social media, generally speaking, who influences trends and what people want to buy and what people want to wear, the kinds of things they want to talk about. But they're literally known as influencers. And there's nothing there about the moral element of whether they're influencing for good or for evil, although in a great many cases, it's unfortunately the latter that is the direction of their influence. But Influence can be used well, and a leader should be influential. In fact, in some senses, that is at the core of what leadership is. It is influence. It's causing someone to go a particular direction. Now, some leadership can be done and some influence through coercion, through forcing, through heavy-handed leadership. Uh, There are times when it is appropriate for a leader to influence through actually exercising authority, but there's much more involved in that. And so the two main ways in which leaders will influence toward godliness in particular are through teaching the word of God, teaching what should be done, and through modeling what should be done. Teaching what should be done and modeling what should be done. In other words, laying out what is there that people are supposed to do and then showing them what this is like. And this is exactly what Paul talks about in Acts 20, isn't it? This is what he says. I taught you everything. I taught you the whole purpose of God. I testified about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I laid out everything. And then I modeled for you the kind of thing that you are to be doing. Not only did Paul model godliness, but he also modeled leadership for them. But this is the kind of thing that uh, will be done by someone who is influencing people toward godliness. As far as teaching goes, we know that in Ephesians 4.11, there are ministries of the word that set the tone for what the church is going to be. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And then with regard to modeling, we find these repeated statements from Paul where he's telling people to be like him. He actually is so bold as to say, I'm following Christ in a way that is enough like what he's doing that you ought to look at me, follow my example, and do what I do. 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. But what is he influencing them toward? What is he modeling? 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me just as I also am of who? Christ. Imitate Jesus Christ. How do you do that? Well, it helps to have someone who is ahead of you in some way who is imitating Christ himself so that you can copy them in all the right kinds of ways. Paul also says in Philippians 3 16, excuse me, 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
Paul is not exclusive in saying he's the only one who has it. He says there's a pattern you have in us, more than one person. And he's not even limiting it just to the the apostles or anyone else who is with him. He says there are people who follow that and you can follow them too. The point is not conformity to Paul per se. The point is that there's a standard of conduct that looks like Christ and leaders live that way if they're faithful Christian leaders and you should be able to look at that person and say, if I live like that person, generally speaking, then I will be like Jesus Christ. Obviously, there are things that are unique to every single person. You don't have to get the same job as a leader to follow Christ faithfully. You don't have to live in the same spot you don't have to drive the same kind of car dress the same way all of those kinds of things that you well know there are a lot of things that are going to look different as far as the particular manifestations of this but there are very obvious moral standards and priorities that a leader will have who is faithful to Jesus Christ that you ought to be able to imitate and that would get you farther down the path to godliness leaders should model godly character they should teach it And they should model it. That's how they influence toward godliness. Another activity of a faithful leader is what we'll call helping or caring or encouraging. Namely, you are coming alongside people. You are assisting them. You're not just telling them what to do and showing them, but you also help when they need it, which means answering questions, giving counsel. Uh, It means that you are praying for them. It means that you meet needs. It means that you are involved. And there is direct watching over the flock that is in view here he talks about this in acts 20 verse 28 be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock he says in verse 31 be on the alert he says in acts 20 verse 20 that he taught from house to house and then in acts 13 17 it's excuse me hebrews 13 17 the writer says obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. We need people to know how we're doing. We need people to watch out for us. We need people to be involved in our lives. We need people to encourage us. We need people to counsel us, to exhort us, to tell us what to do in some ways, to tell us what not to do in some ways. This is the kind of thing that a leader ought to be doing. Helping caring, encouraging, praying, and so on. Watching out for the flock and the people in the flock. And then, thirdly, an activity of a faithful leader is, yes, sometimes exercising authority. Exercising authority. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. It assumes that elders will be ruling They will be leading. And this is not the same exact kind of language as like a king ruling. But there is having charge over that's in view here. There is oversight, administration, management. There are times when someone has to make a decision. And who is it that's tasked with that? But at times, that's a decision for leaders. There are times when standards must be decided. When standards must be interpreted. And where they must be enforced. And it is in those places where there must be leaders who are able to actually do this and to exercise authority. Again, these decisions will be made and these standards will be set and they will be interpreted in one way or another. But the issue is, who should be doing this? And the benefit of having leaders who are biblically qualified is that they are able to actually do this in a way that is in the fear of the Lord and that honors the Lord. Now, in contrast to this, Unfaithful leaders don't teach God's word. 
They set poor examples. They're hypocritical. They don't care about the people that they're supposed to lead. They only care about themselves. They don't want to get involved in hard situations or in people's lives. They abdicate leadership. They don't want to decide anything. And they don't actually exercise leadership when they're supposed to. So if we want to have faithful leadership in the church or be faithful leaders, these are the kinds of things that we need to be doing. Now, a third principle here just to consider Uh, before we look at some specific leadership roles in the church, is the attributes of faithful leaders. What is it that makes someone able to do these things well? What characterizes them? Not just that they're willing to do the things that are there in in these activities, but there are some character traits that they need to have. And there are a number of these listed in the pastoral epistle, the qualifications there. There are a number that are implied in places like Acts 20, but just a few character qualities that I want to give you that I think are essential to a leader being able to do this well. First of all is humility. Humility. This must be at the beginning of a faithful leader. Paul himself said in Acts 20 verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. This is someone who knew more about the Bible than most people will ever will ever know. This is someone who had all kinds of spiritual gifts He had accomplished all kinds of things in terms of his study and in terms of his ministry. Miracles that God had worked through him. Churches started. People saved. All kinds of stuff that had happened. He had developed a name for himself. And yet he said he served the Lord with all humility. All humility. This is the kind of thing that should characterize us. In James chapter 3. The kind of person who wants to show his wisdom and his understanding. James says if you want to do that. Verse 13, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness or the humility of wisdom. We ought not to have selfish ambition and pride. Instead, we ought to have humility. 1 Peter 5, 5, after instructing the elders about the attitude they're supposed to have, he says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another this doesn't exclude leaders this includes leaders for God is opposed he says to the proud but gives grace to the humble a leader who is proud sets a poor example a leader who is proud will be unteachable so they will be unable to learn and to grow a leader who is proud will bring a poor reputation upon Christ and his church, a leader who is proud, will mistreat people. A leader who is proud will cause all kinds of conflict. Humility must, must be there for a leader to lead well. A second attribute is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. We saw this in 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4 already. Uh, there is another passage that speaks about the importance of this in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, there are some instructions given concerning the king who would one day come and would rule over Israel whenever they began to appoint kings over themselves, which they did not have at the time that was written. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 15, uh, excuse me, starting in verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law and a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. 
And that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. So that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. What are the things that he is avoiding by fearing God? He is avoiding pride over the people he's leading. And he is avoiding moral departure from God's standard of conduct. Turning aside to the right or to the left. Sometimes it's easy for us to look and to feel helpless about leadership that's over us that we don't like that isn't concerned with what God says. Because really, the only check on them is the threat that something might happen to them in response. For example, our elected officials, many of them are not concerned with what God actually says or with doing what is right. The only thing that keeps them from doing whatever they want and whatever they think is in their best interest is uh, the possibility that there might be adverse consequences to them from the people or from their actions. They think that maybe they'll be voted out or maybe something will happen to them legally if they go too far. But if they didn't think that they had that problem, if they were able to accumulate enough power to themselves, what would stop them from doing all kinds of evil? And we've seen that play out historically in many cases. People who are not concerned for what God says, they just do whatever they want. What is it that stops someone ultimately from misusing leadership? Is it the fear of the reputation that they'll have as a tyrant? Is it that they're afraid that they won't be very effective in what they're doing? No, ultimately, authority is checked first and foremost and most of all by the fear of the Lord. By the fact that a leader recognizes whatever degree he may be in authority over someone else, he has to give an answer to someone. He himself will be judged by God. God, as Ecclesiastes says, bring every act into judgment. Everything. So when a person does what he's going to do as a leader, he can't simply say, well, I'm in charge. You do what I want. He has to consider the approval of another. This is what Paul said in such places as 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Or he said in 1 Corinthians 4, You know, it's a really tiny thing what you think about me or what anybody thinks about me. Not because he's not concerned with having a good reputation because he himself said that you have to be above reproach to be an elder in the church. But it's because he's not basing his faithfulness, his credibility, his reward upon the judgment of men because he knows that who's going to judge his motives and his actions ultimately on the last day is God himself. So he says, let's wait till the Lord comes and he's going to bring to light the motives and the deeds and then everybody will receive their reward. So the fear of the Lord is vital for someone who would lead. Uh, Obviously, then a third thing that would be a a helpful attribute would be the knowledge of God's word. The knowledge of God's word, we'll see this when we talk about leaders in the church needing to know the word of God to be able to teach it. Uh, Knowledge of God's word was uh, modeled by such men as Ezra who had set his heart to know, to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes in Israel. Ezra 7.10, this was his plan, this was his practice. You have to know the word of God in order to do this. If you want to be wise, if you want to be a wise leader, what do you need to know? You need to know what God's word says. When Solomon asked that he might be able to lead the people well, he asked for wisdom from God. And that, of course, comes primarily through knowing the scriptures. If we want to know what God wants us to do, if we want to know what God expects us to be, if we want to be wise in that particular way, 
then knowledge of God's word is completely essential. So someone who is a faithful leader will be knowledgeable in God's word. He will also be dedicated to prayer. In Acts chapter 6 verse 4, we saw that the apostles were concerned about being distracted from what they needed to be doing as leaders of the church. There were really important things that needed to be done. The table service needed to take place. There were widows of certain tribes that were being neglected in the uh, food distribution. So this is a really important thing. So they said, we got to figure this out. We've got to fix this. But we can't do it ourselves. Because we as leaders of God's people need to do this, Acts 6-4, devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They understood that this is what they needed to be doing. A faithful leader dedicates himself to prayer and, who, and is praying for God's people and for God's work to go forth. One more attribute is that of faithfulness. Faithfulness. How do you know uh, right from the get-go whether somebody is worthy of investment as a potential leader? 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. Faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There are people who want to be in leadership and can't even lead themselves. They can't even be faithful in their responsibilities that they have. These are supposed to be uh, the kind of men that you can trust things with. And of course, this good deposit that Paul talks to Timothy about of the word of God and the gospel will need to be put into the hands of people who are faithful and who can be trusted with it. They can be trusted not to deviate from it. They can be trusted to do what they're supposed to with it. They've shown themselves to be responsible in ministry and in their character. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. This is a responsibility that anyone who is going to lead needs to have. So then, these are the kinds of things that leadership should involve. These are principles that should characterize biblical leadership. Not only the activities, but also the attributes. Now, I want to talk just for a few minutes about uh, some of the particular leadership roles that the New Testament describes and how that plays out. And we'll see some of this may spill over into next week. But uh, let's consider just at least for a few minutes the people in biblical leadership. The people in biblical leadership. And uh, we're going to talk first about the officers of the church. The officers officers of the church, and there are two. Elders and deacons. Elders and deacons. For this, there are a few key passages. Acts 20 that I already read. 1 Peter 5, which I've already referenced, verses 1 through 4, and then 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. When it comes to elders of the church, elders are uh, one of the names for the office of pastor or overseer. These terms are used basically interchangeably uh, to refer to the same office, even though there's a different dimension intended by each of them. Elder, of course, would kind of refer to spiritual maturity. Overseer would refer to the uh, function of looking out for and administering and being in charge. And then pastor or shepherd would refer to the idea of caring for the flock. And, of course, there is a teaching role that's associated with that as well in Acts 4.11, pastors and teachers. So what you have then is kind of all of the basic functions of this 
position that are described by means of the various roles. So when someone is referred to here as an elder, that means a pastor, that means an overseer. And that might be someone who is vocationally doing that as their job. Someone, it may also include someone who is doing another vocation, but nonetheless is just as much a pastor as anyone else. Um, when it comes to these elders, these pastors, overseers, um, there are particular things scripture says about how many there are and their qualifications and what they do. Um, there is in the New Testament taught a plurality of elders, plurality of pastors, meaning that the New Testament model is that of a group, not just one pastor who is in charge of the whole church, although in some rare circumstances a church may find itself where that, there is only one person who meets the qualifications, one person is able to take that on. But we would see that as a problem to be fixed, not as the goal to be aspired to. Plurality is the name of the game. So, for example, in Titus 1.5, uh, where there was a church in every city, Paul said to Titus, I left you in Crete so that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Acts 14, 23, they appointed elders for them in every church. In Acts chapter 20, he called together the elders of the church in Ephesus. This is a plural role. The expectation is there will be more than one and this is not just run by one guy. <clears throat> but despite the fact that we want more than one of these, there are also qualifications that have to be met. If you look in 1 Timothy 3, uh, you'll see these roughly broken down. And we won't go through these in intense detail. Um, but in 1 Timothy 3, you see here that there are basically three categories of qualifications. What are the qualifications of being a pastor, elder, overseer? These three categories of qualifications are basically desire, character, and ability. Desire, character, and ability. Does he want to do it? Does his life line up with the, the character needed? And then is he actually functionally able to carry out the responsibilities of the role? So 1 Timothy 3.1 talks about the desire. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. 1 Peter 5.2 says that a shepherd must do so not under compulsion, but voluntarily. He must do it not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. This is something that's done not for selfish ambition, not for money, not for fame and approval, not just for fun, but it's something that is to be done for the good of the people led. But it must be done with eagerness. It needs to be something that you need to really want to do. If somebody doesn't really want to do this, perhaps they should change the way they think about it. But until they do, they should not be forced or cajoled to try to take on such a role. There is to be a desire there, and that desire should remain and be cultivated. Secondly, character. And all these character qualifications are laid out here in 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 7. And in Titus 1, verses 5 through 8. Uh, the fundamental idea behind character is that an overseer or pastor or elder needs to be above reproach. That all of his character means that the gospel will not come under reproach by virtue of his life contradicting the message. Verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and so on. 
In verses 6 and 7, he takes the subject up again. Not a new convert so that he won't become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. People should not be able to speak evil of Christ or the church because the leader's lives are ungodly or hypocritical. They need to be qualified in their character. And you see some of the specific issues here. They need to be faithful to their wife, a husband of one wife. They need to be able to control themselves, temperate, prudent. They need to make wise decisions. They need to be respectable in their conduct, their character. They need to be hospitable, welcoming to people, loving people, be willing to give of what is theirs and make it that of other people. They need to be able to teach, which we'll come back to shortly as far as ability. Not addicted to wine. In other words, not caught up and controlled by other things. Not pugnacious. Not someone who is eager to fight. Yes, they must be willing to contend for the truth, but not someone who just wants to fight everyone. Gentle and peaceable. They have this kind of character about them where they are strong in many good ways, but at the same time they are not overbearing and that they are humble and they are approachable. They're able to be talked to. They're able to be reasoned with. They're free from the love of money, not greedy. They're not in it for their own interests. They're in it for the interests of others and God's glory. This kind of person then is the kind who is qualified. The third qualification, desire, character, and ability. You can see the ability spoken of here. First of all, in verse 2, it's explicit. He must be able to teach able to teach Titus 1 says he must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he can both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict a faithful leader needs to know the word of God but not just to know the word of God but also to be able to teach the word of God effectively and beyond that to be able to show why things that are erroneous are erroneous to prove from the scriptures where someone is wrong now there are will be degrees of this and not every person will have the same extent of knowledge of the Bible, not the same uh, strengths or weaknesses with regard to the particular venues in which they teach. And so there are going to be times when when the able to teach is on a particular spectrum of ability and uh, wisdom is required in simply making a judgment call about whether someone is able to teach knowledgeable enough, able enough to communicate these truths in order, to, uh, in order to become an elder or an overseer or a pastor. But nonetheless, there must be there in whatever form is decided is necessary the ability to teach. The other ability that's spoken of here is a management ability. And the test is one's own home management, household management. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? This is just basic understanding. If you have a little group at home and everything is out of order there, why would you think it'd be any different in a bigger place in the church? If you can't manage your own household, how will you manage God's household? How are you going to pull that off? So you have to tend to this. Now, what's 
important to note here as well, this is not supposed to be some kind of special characteristic of elders, as if they're the only ones who need this, or as if even they should necessarily give some particular attention to this over and above everyone else in the church. This is just what a faithful man should do in general. He should care for his home. He should care for his family. He should care for his children. So this is something that everyone should be doing. But Paul says, look, he may be able to teach, but is he doing what he's just supposed to be doing at home? If not, why would you put him in charge of God's house? So he needs to be able to do these things. This is his ability to teach and to manage a household well. By the way, there is he language here throughout this. There is man language used throughout this. And Paul is completely clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that this is a role that is limited to men only. That it does exclude women This is not because women are of lesser value. This is because God made a particular created order. And he says in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 2, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. This is not a cultural invention. This is not something from a bygone day where all of a sudden now we're enlightened in the 2000s and we know that women can do all the things that men can do. It's not about whether she can do those things. It's about what did God actually design as this particular order. And Paul says this applies to the order and the authority in the church. Therefore, teaching or exercising authority by women over men is something that violates Scripture. Therefore, it's impossible for an elder who is going to have teaching as part of his role to be anything but male. So this is part of the qualifications. Elders will, functionally speaking, give oversight to the flock Hebrews 13, 17, I already read. They keep watch over your soul. Elders will, functionally, they will pastor and shepherd. They will look out for the souls of people. They will model godliness, as I've mentioned earlier, as a vital component of leadership. And they will teach others. They will teach the truth. We'll have to pick up here next time because there are some important things to consider as well about the other office the office of deacon, and then as well as that, anything that the elders and deacons may decide uh, that they need to have done that may require some responsibility given to others. This is what we'll call others in leadership roles, but we'll look at those things next time, and then we'll consider as well, how do we get to the place where we as a church, even if we ourselves are never in leadership or if we're not in leadership currently, if you find yourself in a position where you say, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a pastor and I never intend to be, how does this apply and how do we make sure that this happens? Remember, leadership is essential for the church. And so if you care about your church and your own spiritual well-being, you need to care about leadership. And there are some things that you can do to make sure that your church has it and to do your part in bringing that about. And uh, next time we're going to talk about what some of those things are. For now, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, thank you for this morning, for being together. Thank you that you've given us these uh, standards of what leaders in the church ought to be. Thank you that you've given us the gift of leadership, uh, of having people who can help us. And may you give us all a fear of the Lord 
Uh, we pray for those who are leaders in particular of this church that you would help us to be godly. We pray for those who might aspire to it, that you would help them to do the same, that you would grow up those within this church who can take on leadership responsibilities. We pray that you would help us to be wise about bringing that about. And we pray that all of this would be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.